Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 115, recorded on April 28th, 2021. The Cloud Pod gets to the root of it. Good evening, Jonathan. Ooh, I hear a bit of an echo in here today. Yeah, yeah, we, uh, you know, we're missing uh, Peter and Ryan. Uh, you know, Ryan said something about kittens sitting on his lap, and he couldn't get up to come join us. And you know, Peter's fighting dinosaurs, something I don't, I don't really know. Uh, <laughs> but neither one of them uh, made it today for recording, and so we are proceeding without them. Which I don't think we've done a two-person show, and since since we added Ryan to the show, yeah, so it's been at least we've been able to pull three. So it's it's been a while. I mean, it's, maybe we've got some weird split brain thing going on, and you and I will record a show, and he and Pete will record a show, and we'll end up with two episodes. <laughs> oh, there you go. That'd be great. Yeah, we could you know, stitch them in together. Yeah, lots of fun <laughs> editing for our editors. I'm sure they'll love that. <laughs> well, it's, uh, you know, we didn't want to skip this week, because uh, that's what we will typically do, is we'll just kind of push this into next week's show, but there's a lot of news this week, uh, and we wanted to make sure we got to that this week, versus trying to combine it to next week into a two-hour show, which would have been just brutally long for all of you so we're sparing you that and you just get jonathan and i which is you know it's the smarter half of the of the four of us anyways so it's all good i have no complaints nope <laughs> <laughs> all right well let's move on uh, to new stuff on the amazon world uh vmware uh you know rds on vmware networking has now been simplified quite a bit and now is more secure uh by removing vpn tunnels so apparently it used to require you to have a VPN tunnel to talk between Amazon's control plane and your RDS on VMware instances on-premise. And now you don't have to do that because their agent now talks TLS via HTTPS, uh, making it easier than ever before to leverage your RDS on-premises and potentially lower your costs as you don't have to have one of those pesky VPN concentrators. Although I don't really know many companies that don't have a concentrator for some other reason <laughs> than this one. But uh, if this is your only reason, I guess you can save some money. Yeah, I guess it's one less single point of failure as well. Oh. Or uh, well, nice point of failure at least. Still super expensive. Yes, still very expensive. Uh, you, know, you still pay for your own licensing if you're using SQL Server. You still pay a premium, you know, for the fact that you bought the hardware yourself and you're running your own VMware licensing and all that. So, you know, I, I'll get excited about this when there's a price cut for it, which you know is yet to happen. But you know, I, I like their managed service. I don't know if I want to pay that much for that little value <laughs> of running RDS. Yeah, I mean, for for a thousand dollars a month, though, you could. Right, what is it like? Ten hours worth of somebody's time? I mean, who has just one RDS instance, though? I mean, you have to have, you probably have to have multiples for high availability, and you know, so those numbers add up pretty quickly. You know, fifteen hundred dollars a month is what I estimated out for like a sixteen vCPU, sixty-four gig uh, SQL server, and that's just the Amazon charge. And then you got your hardware, which has depreciation, and then you've got uh, your Microsoft licensing, which is probably you know, a couple thousand dollars a month as well. Um, so, you know, it's just, it's a lot of cost uh, in there at the end of the day. And I just don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Cheaper than pay for healthcare, though. <laughs> yes, very, very true. All right. Well, the next one up is uh, Elasticsearch Service, or uh, apparently they haven't got the memo that they're now open search service. But, uh, you know, Amazon takes a little while to get the marketing team to notify everyone that, hey, you're no longer known as the Amazon Elasticsearch Service. Uh, but they're now supporting asynchronous search uh, to submit a query that gets executed asynchronously. You can monitor the progress of that request, and you can retrieve result sets at a later stage, um, as or as long as basically whatever the caching ter- period is for that uh, particular query. Uh, you can also retrieve your partial results as they become available if you uh, kind of want to fill as you go. Uh, and this can be great for large volumes of data, cross-cluster searches, or ultra-warm, where users need to run queries with wildcard parameters that may need to scan the entire data set or multiple clusters. That's that's really cool. I, just, I mean, it 
sitting there waiting for one particular, one particular call to be returned with, with a ton of data is never good. You know, you lose your connection, all of a sudden you got to run a query again. And we have that for some of the big reports that we run right now. So I like it. Yeah. I mean, it, it's sort of the uh, elephant in the room there that they talk about multiple clusters. And like, that's really the right way to scale Elasticsearch with multiple clusters, apparently. And then the need for federated search becomes a suddenly a big issue, which, you know, then you have searches of the searches and you know, just, it's a, just hurdles all the way down in the Elasticsearch world. I hope they'll update the UI as well so that when when your query finally gets returned, it says, hey, your data's here now. Do you want to see it? Yeah. I'm sure that you can query that API, though, and check on it. So maybe that's the way you do that. But Because yeah, you can't query the status. But uh, yeah, it's uh, you know, it'd be cool if you can then tie into a Lambda function and you can fire off other things and you know, your machine learning job. There's lots of use cases for this over time. Horrendous. Oh, my God. Peter's arrived like a ghost out of the nether. <laughs> Horrendous. Well, uh, you missed the you missed the pre-show warm-up, and we're already recording. So, Perfect. welcome to the party midway through. Nice. <laughs> and now everyone will find out just how prepared Peter really is. Let me guess. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we were just uh, finishing up talking about uh, our asynchronous search and Elasticsearch. Uh, so you missed out that riveting conversation and the great, amazing points that Jonathan made about it. But uh, so, if anyone asks you about fighting dinosaurs, just just go along with it. I'll go along with it. Yeah, no problem. Just, just keep going. <laughs> Uh, and Ryan's uh, visiting some kittens that are sitting on his lap, and he, he just can't come to the show. Uh-huh. So, yeah, that's, that's how it works. Well, uh, EC2 has enabled something, again, that I am shocked to finally see. Uh, you know, some, Apparently, someone's finally said Amazon EC2 needs some innovation because you know, we got the ability to connect to the serial console of them uh, a few weeks ago. And now we're getting the ability to replace the root volume uh, for quick restoration and troubleshooting. Um, EC2 now allows you to replace the root volume for running instance. This feature restores the root volume of instance to either its launch state or to a specific snapshot without stopping the instance. Oh, wow. This allows a customer to fix the issue, such as root volume corruption or guest operating system networking configurations. Or like I like to do, break the LVM configuration. I can now fix that potentially <laughs> through root volume restoration. Um, you can use this feature today if you're using EC2 snapshots and EC2. Neat. I mean, it's still not, it says not stopping the instance, which means you don't lose data on the instance store, but it's still, you still have to reboot the instance. I mean, it's not re- not recovering RAM from a snapshot or anything like that. So it's still not quite what we can do with VMware. But uh, what, what great news, though. I mean, when we deploy stuff with Terraform or CloudFormation, we need to restore data from an old backup. It's such a pain to have to build a new volume and then you know, swap the volume back into this thing, which is supposed to be managed by by uh, infrastructure as code and now if you do an update it wants to replace the instance again it's just it's a very bad situation to be in so this is great so you're saying this is iac friendly yes absolutely absolutely well and it's also nice too because you know there's been those times where you you have a vm you're maybe doing something manually on it and you realize you messed up and you want to kind of take it back well the, the way to do that before was you got to terminate the whole instance and then redo the launch configuration or all your user data there's a lot of steps to it if you're doing it manually, which I don't recommend. But if you were, <laughs> you can definitely have some challenges. And so this is nice for that too, is just like, hey, I don't have to resubstantiate the entire instance. I don't have to go through the whole provisioning process again. I can just you know, restore to the snapshot I took before I messed with my LVM config and off to the races I go. I got, some, I got another use case for it though. It's not just a matter of backups and backup and restores in case something went wrong. I mean, I'm thinking we have these very large database nodes and if and what this gives me the chance to do is to swap out the, the operating system disk completely you know i could do an upgrade by taking out the root volume swapping it for a new version putting it back without having to ship off my you know t- 16 terabytes of data to another device because over a network that's that's not cheap right yeah not at all 
yeah, it'd be cool if you got roll forward, like where I want to copy a snapshot from another root volume to this root volume. There, there could be some really interesting use cases. Yeah. Um, so this might, you know, lead us to eventually, but right now it's just restoration, which is a good starting place. Yeah, that's nice. I mean, the challenge up until now have been, I, I assume that the challenge had been um, that the billing code was tied to the root volume. And so, you know, it would be easy to, to provision a Linux machine, not pay for a, for Windows licensing, and then just, you know, uh, write the bytes over the Linux volume with a Windows machine and boot that up. And now all of a sudden you can run Windows for free on, on EC2. So the, I assume that there must be some solution in place now where they by, where they track the billing code for the for the image or for the instance even, independently of the what's in the root volume. Well, in case they didn't, I'll go ahead and give that a try. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've always been able to uh, take a Windows instance, download your own SQL Server binaries to it and run SQL Server on top of it, which is not not kosher either. Uh, so there are lots of ways to get yourself audited by Microsoft or Oracle, and I don't recommend any of them. Yeah, really. <laughs> <So> <laughs> don't go down that path. You can help it. Just because you can doesn't make it right. Yeah. Unless you're low morals, and then you shouldn't be doing this anyways. So. Well, uh, you can now use Red Hat Enterprise Linux with high availability on Amazon EC2 as an AMI image. Uh, this is now available for Red Hat version 8.3 and 7.9, and this allows you to build highly available compute clusters uh, and this is typically for applications that are very complex business and transaction requirements that don't benefit from standard load balancing techniques. And so um, they're typically using uh, open source software like CoroSync um, or some of the other high clustering capabilities of uh, Red Hat to uh, solve this issue. Uh, prior to this, you could do this on AWS. It wasn't it, there was nothing that prevented you from doing it, but you had to have your own support contract with Red Hat, uh, purchase in advance the Red Hat Cloud, Cloud Access Program, and now this is all available to you through Marketplace uh, and AMI Access, uh, which is much much simpler deal with and also now maintained by red hat which is also a bonus yeah so uh ibm not throwing up barriers for people to use red hat on aws that's good to see eventually ibm will figure out that they're better off just selling software to all the cloud providers right we're just trying to compete (laughs) uh, it seems like a much better play than trying to make your own cloud and become a solid number four number five player in that cloud space Mm. yeah it's definitely useful for People with lots of stateful concerns. I imagine banking, healthcare, any any kind of tra- highly transactional things where you need to replicate the state applications in real time between multiple nodes in a cluster in case one were to go down. It's it's pretty pricey to run. I, I think there are better ways to architect things nowadays, but it, it might be a good foot in the door for people doing migrations. Well, and there's always those enterprise workloads that you know it can't move unless you can do exactly what I can do on premise, even if there's better ways. Yeah. So it, it just it removes, removes a blocker, which is a big deal. Yeah, or shrink wrap software that requires this for HA. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, that too. Well, first it became the uh, Amazon File Gateway, which allowed you to connect uh, local storage on a VM appliance or on a hardware device uh, to S3, which was great for object storage. Uh, but if you were trying to do network attached, um, it had some limitations and some challenges with it. And so Amazon is now giving you the capability with Amazon FSX File Gateway, a new type of AWS storage gateway that helps you access data stored in the cloud uh, via NAS capability, particularly SIFs uh, from Windows. Uh, FSX file gateways use network optimizations and caching, so it appears to your users and apps as if the shared data were still on-premises. And by leveraging the service, you can divest yourself of undifferentiated maintenance involving managed on-premise file servers. Oh, that's a shot across the bow net app. Oof, that was rough. Yeah. <laughs> uh, FSX file gateway supports multiple users sharing files with advanced data management features such as access control, snapshots for data protection, and integrated backups, and more. Uh, and it is fully integrated into Amazon backups on launch, ensuring the data is backed up and usable, uh, as it does make sure that is asset compliant. This will cost you a cool $514 per month, uh, plus the cost of the object stored in the FSX, uh, which is using typical uh, FSX charges, which is about $0.11 cents, uh, per gigabyte for multi-AZ deployments. 
be uh, good to see how this works. You know, there's been a lot of like all the S3 gateway stuff has have have had some pretty big gaps in features and can and uh, consistency from a performance standpoint. So uh, maybe this, I guess this would be a little easier to implement. Hopefully, it it's the ground running. Yeah, I, I'm. I think this is actually probably a better use case than this, the normal storage gateway is for most companies. Most companies aren't using object storage on-prem. You know, it just didn't exist, and early object storage is really a cloud thing to begin with. Um, so I think presenting SIFs and maybe eventually NFS through this method uh, is probably going to be a much more tangible method. And the nice part is you can also deploy this gateway into your VPC, too. So you can actually use this as a bridge to get you from on-prem to the cloud with here some of your legacy applications, which might be really beneficial, too. Nice, it's pretty cheap, really. Five hundred dollars a month isn't isn't terrible to to have somebody manage that service for you. Yep, that's uh. Well, if you're running on in the cloud, it's a little bit more expensive because you're paying for the EC2 as well. But uh, yeah, for on-prem for a file gateway uh, device, I think it's a great price. Yeah, and there's, there's lots of weird use cases. I mean, people think about you know, FTP just you know, it moves a single file or SFTP is a single file. When you get into things like SIFs, you realize that, that a single file object on a disk on a on a Windows disk could actually contain more than one data stream. So, so you can have you know a binary, but it could also have a second stream, which is something else. And so there's, there's probably a lot, a lot of additional complexity that people don't really understand. Uh, and I think that's where the real value add for this is. It's not just a matter of um, copying files to S3. It's a matter of, of ensuring compatibility with your Windows legacy applications. Or just throw it away and build it someplace else. <laughs> <laughs> so many options. Yeah. <laughs> just throw away all that old junk. You don't need it. Your competitors don't have it. So just, just move forward. Uh, well, apparently Amazon CloudWatch uh, has uh, finally learned about the magic of Ajax. <laughs> and it's now giving you moving graphs, uh, which allow you to animate your CloudWatch dashboards and more uh, easily see the progress of health and operational performance trends over time. Uh, or as I like to call this feature, GIFs for CloudWatch. <laughs> Uh, moving graphs make it easier to identify the specific time an operational issue occurred and can be used to correlate trends across many related resources for AWS services. Uh, the moving graph automatically visualizes a moving window over your data, creating the effects of trends as the time window progresses. Uh, which is actually nice, because there's been some times where you know, I've been trying to compare something or I want to see it over a trend over time, and it's really difficult to do that kind of refreshing and changing of time by, uh, by parameters in CloudWatch. This is actually, I'm looking forward to this one. Uh, it definitely can help show some some issues that you may have missed uh, due to the time gaps in the dashboards. Uh, did, did it say how how close to real time it can get? Is it like one second, five seconds resolution? You know, it did not say, Jonathan. And uh, that's that's disappointing because I'm uh, I'm guessing the data is still the data. You can just see data before. Yeah. I assume that if the data is in CloudWatch, I assume you can report it in the dashboard. Yeah. I'm, I'm waiting for the first person to build a video game using it then, whether you just push metrics to CloudWatch and let CloudWatch graph the you know the terrain or something like that. It's going to happen. <laughs> Sounds like an EM project waiting to happen. Yeah. <laughs> Ian McKay can get right on top of that for us. <laughs> uh, well, I'm excited to see that future waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, that's it for Amazon news this week. Uh, GCP has also been busy. Uh, the first one, if you're using a PHP in your application and you've been uh, super excited about serverless but couldn't do it on Google, uh, you now can with Cloud Functions. Uh, Google Fast is offering uh, now supports PHP uh, 7.4, uh, and it supports both the HTTP functions and the Cloud Event functions. Of course, HTTP is similar to a webhook, whereas the Cloud Event function itself responds to Google services such as PubSub, Cloud Storage, or Firestore. 
uh, and using all of the CNCF cloud events that they support. So uh, integration now available to you if you only know PHP or you really like PHP for some particular reason. And this is a great way to now get into the serverless ecosystem. It's been around a long time. A lot of people know it. It is very mature. It's, our website is ran by a PHP because it's WordPress. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and then every, every time I have to troubleshoot it, I just curse it out every time. It's just awful because <laughs> I don't really know it very well. And I know enough to be dangerous. And uh, it's, it's just, uh, you know, the website is a website. People don't, people don't go there anyways. They just go to the, the their podcast app. So no one knows. I toil for hours over the placement of graphics and how things look, and no one ever looks. It's fine. <laughs> I've seen the metrics. I know. Nobody cares. Uh, yeah, not for a podcast app. You know, it's just, it's, is it in Google uh, Play or is it in Apple Podcasts? Good. We're moving on. That's all, that's all they care about, most people in the podcast space. Uh, well, if you need to protect your web apps and APIs against threats and fraud, uh, Google Cloud has your back. Uh, and Gartner apparently also recently noted that by 2023, more than 30% of public-facing web apps will be protected by cloud web application and API protection services that combine DDoS, bot mitigation, API protection, and WAF. And this will increase from fewer than 10% today. Um, so to capitalize on this, GCP is launching the Web App and API Protection Framework, or WAP, which the WAP I'm aware of right now is is a rap song that's very inappropriate for this child-friendly podcast. Uh, <laughs> this provides a comprehensive threat protection for your web apps and APIs. Uh, Google Cloud Web App is based on the same technology that Google uses to protect its public-facing servicing as web app exploits, DDoS attacks, and fraudulent bot activity. Uh, and it combines three leading products, including Google Cloud Armor, Apogee, and Recapture Enterprise uh, for all those taxis that I have to identify in my recapture. Uh, in this particular photo. Uh, Miles Ward, who we just did a recent interview with from SADA System CTO, said, I've seen our customers benefit greatly from each part of Google Cloud WAP, and now that it's a package solution, we can bring a more comprehensive security solution to a broader set of clients much faster. SADA is excited to partner with Google to bring its outstanding security solution to our customers' mission-critical projects. I feel like it's going to be so much higher than 30% by 2023 yeah. because these these products are getting so easy to just dump in front of everything that I feel like it would be like 70%. I mean, it's it's spoken to you by Gartner, who only talks to enterprises who pay them a lot of money. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, I, you know, when you get these kind of quotes and percentages from Gartner, it's always a bit questionable, some of these. But, uh, yeah, I, I think 30% is probably even, or 10% today is probably even low. Um, I can't imagine running a web application without a WAF in front of it these days. It's, it's so, so easy. Much bot traffic. And it's so easy. Just click, click, and it's enabled in an API gateway or in uh, your ALB load balancer. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered.
Well, customers uh, who are excited about Doc AI solutions are now excited because it's now generally available, including the Lending Doc AI and the Procurement Doc AI, built on decades of AI innovation at Google, bringing powerful and useful solutions to the everyday technical challenges. Uh, there are several capabilities kind of brought together with the Doc AI platform, including computer vision, which includes OCR, natural language processing, and Google Knowledge Graph to validate and enhance the fields in your documents, and training and creation of your own custom document models, and human interaction with AI to ensure accuracy where needed, which means if it basically failed your AI ML, it goes to a human who then does it and then feeds that back into the model so it doesn't fail in the future. All provided to you as a great service directly from Google as a higher value service. This is a great, uh, fantastic ML AI use case. Highly recommend checking these services out if you're in the Google ecosystem and looking for doc recognition uh, for your apps. It's funny, we're still talking about scanning things off paper, though. Like the promise of the paperless office never materialized. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, having formerly worked in the mortgage industry that is very paper dependent and very wet signature dependent, uh, you know, part of it is regulation. And regulation yep. has prevented yeah. a lot of the paperless office from becoming real. Um, and only COVID is actually sort of forcing the hand on some of that with things like e-closing and, and using more things like DocuSign or HelloSign, et cetera. So... It's starting to change, uh, but it's definitely been hindered by you know regulation for the most part. Yeah, it's, it's just like healthcare. I, we literally had to send a fax last week due to doctors and healthcare facilities requirements. Yep, yep. Once a year, I send a fax. It's like a dollar fifty from the local store. A dollar fifty to send a fax. So <laughs> we have we have an e-fax account from like when e-fax started, and it never got rid of. And just every once in a while, this comes up. It's like, oh, I can do that. I'm never getting rid of it. <laughs> the sad thing is I've got a multifunction printer that will do faxing and I just don't have a wire long enough to plug it into the phone line and it's cheaper just to pay the dollar fifty than it is to, to go, right. go and buy the extension cord <laughs> but yeah I mean the first the first thing those companies do with that paper those papers that you wet sign is scan them <laughs> and then they put yeah, them in the right. box and they send yeah. it to a warehouse and it gets archived by, by somebody Iron Mountain or somebody for 25 years it's it's so backward relying on pens and paper and and un, almost unverifiable signatures anymore. I just can't believe it's, you know, <laughs> 2021. That's the voter fraud thing is they're going to do voter voter signature verification. And I was like, where do you find enough people trained in signature recognition to be able to do that kind of level of voter fraud detection of signature validation? Like, it just, like, it's a great talking point on the news and like, oh, voter fraud and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, but the reality of doing signature verification is a nightmare. Uh, there's just no way to do it reliably that I can see. So it's just it's a silly, silly talking point. That I, I will get my use. signature changed to an X. <laughs> well, even even on credit card statements, I don't think they mean anything. I mean, I've signed look Mickey anymore. Mouse. I signed yeah. Mickey Mouse on so many of them. The only time they actually ever look at them is if there's a pro, you know if you basically are are char, you know protesting the charge, they might call the vendor and the vendor has to produce the signed document or a record of it. That's the only time that ever comes up. Um, and that's very rare even now. They, you know, most of the time it's cheaper for the, the credit card company just to write it off. Right. Well, if you are excited about GKE and machine learning, then you know the need to take advantage of those NVIDIA A100 GPUs. And so Google is now allowing you to use GKE and the NVIDIA GPUs together. Uh, developer and data scientists continue to heavily leverage GKE to run demanding workloads, uh, as I just mentioned. And now with multi-instance GPUs and GKE, you can partition a single NVIDIA A100 GPU into seven instances that each have their own high bandwidth memory, cache, and compute cores. 
Each instance can then be allocated to one container for a maximum of seven containers per one NVIDIA A100 GPU. And with our new A2 VMs, which includes 16 A100 GPUs per instance, you can now have up to 112 schedulable GPU instances per node via GKE for all your machine learning workloads. And now I know why TSMC stock is so darn high. <laughs> and everyone else making chips uh, because those things are expensive and apparently Google and AWS and Azure are just you know buying all the GPUs. Yeah. That will drive that will drive additional suppliers. I think the barrier to entry is a bit high in the GPU space, but you know, yes, it should in theory yeah. you know, supply Longer. demand problem. It'll take a little, little while for that to happen. Take a little while, but it'll happen. But did TSMC make the Apple chips? They do. Yeah. As far as I know, they're the only people that can can make four and five nanometer chips reliably right now. They are the only ones. Yep. So the you know, ARM basically you know has the specs and license the the blueprints, and then you know Apple and other companies come in and you know build what they want with those blueprints, and then they hand it to TSMC, and TSMC manufactures all the chips, and you know that's why their stock is through the roof, and there's a shortage because they can't you know they can't scale production as fast as they need to. What a massive risk to the tech industry having one supply yeah. of something so critical. Yeah, it's a it's a huge issue, and you'd think that you know. Intel should be trying to get in on this somehow, and like, because they need to, they need a future past eighty six, you know, x eighty six architecture. So, why don't you just get into the TSMC game? Like, you can make a fortune just catching up on the backlog that's currently out there. So, makes no sense. Or they could spend more on marketing, or trying to come up with the, you know, the successor to x eighty six, the you know, and try to blow ARM out of the water from that direction, which you know is 10, 20 years of investment in R and D that they don't have the time for. Exactly. Hang on, hang on, x x eighty seven. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> Actually, I'm pretty sure we x87. $40 million on it. We, we've come up with <laughs> x87. No, I think 87 is already taken. Might have to be 88. No, 88 is already used. 8088? Remember the 8088? Yeah, yep. Oh, the, uh, it was in the Motorola 8088. Yeah. Anyways. I think my washing machine uses one of those. <laughs> <laughs> One of Azure Cloud's big uh, claims of fame is they love to build supercomputers in the cloud. And so they are now helping the UK Met Office, uh, which, you know, I, I was going to have to go to, Britain, to Jonathan and say, what's the Met Office? And then luckily they explained it to me in the article. That's the UK Meteorological Office. Uh, and they're apparently working with Microsoft to deliver advanced supercomputing capabilities of, for weather and climate research, ensuring the continuation of the Met Office's international leadership in this area. And so Azure will integrate HPE Cray EX supercomputers from HPE plus Microsoft High Performance Arc Active Data Archive Systems and other Azure Cloud technologies along with end-to-end managed services to deliver this market-leading supercomputing as a service. The partnership will also include innovation services to support the Met Office, including future technology like AI and machine learning. And the new capability will be operational by July of next year. The solution will be built into four quadrants to optimize operational resilience for mission-critical supercomputing capability, with each quadrant consisting of an HPE Cray AEX supercomputer integrated into Azure, initially using the third-gen AMD EPIC processors, which will later be augmented with the next generation of EPIC processors in the future quadrants. It is expected that this will offer over 1.5 million processor cores and over 60 petaflops, or 60 quadrillion calculations per second of aggregate peak computing. That is a big computer. So we're finally, we're finally, the, the two worlds are colliding, supercomputers and cloud? Apparently so. I, you know, so first thing, I didn't, I didn't realize Cray had been bought by HPE, uh, which sort of makes me sad in some ways because, you know, Cray Computing was one, of the re- it was one of the reasons I got into technology back in the day. And, you know, Jurassic Park, the book, got me excited about Cray and all that. And so 
just been uh, you know interesting to see them kind of evolve over the years. And then getting bought by HPE, it's like oh okay, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully uh, they keep it going. Of all the of all the uh, computer manufacturers that came with built-in chairs or seating, Cray were the most comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> they are pretty comfortable. I sat in one actually. Yeah, <laughs> it'd be great if they spun off a furniture business. <laughs> that would be that'd be hilarious. Built-in built-in heating. <laughs> yeah, they're definitely actually, warm. Yeah, I haven't been down to the the computer museum in Mountain View recently. I should go check that out again if it's open again. Uh, I mean, does it still exist? <laughs> I mean, with with all of the uh, COVID stuff, I just don't know what exists anymore. I'm pleasantly surprised when I go look up something. I'm like, oh, it's still, it's still around. It didn't go out of business. Oh, I was still there. I'm sure it is. It was, it's a nonprofit and sponsored by you know all the Silicon Valley tech companies. All right. And then the last Azure story is uh, the new Red Hat and Azure innovations coming up uh, via the Red Hat Summit, which was this week, which they did a terrible job letting us know about because I would have uh, I would have told you all about it in the what's coming up section, but they told us today or earlier in the week right before this started. So it doesn't really work for podcast schedule. Uh, but Microsoft is joining the Red Hat Summit this week and will be bringing several Red Hat capabilities to Azure, including support for Azure pay-as-you-go images via the Azure Hybrid Benefit for Linux, which allows you to save costs on software running Red Hat uh, Linux in Azure and great for persistent workloads like SAP. As well as you can now use JBoss Enterprise App Platform in preview with Azure App Services, Azure Red Hat OpenShift, and they're working closely with Red Hat to enhance Ansible on the Azure platform specifically. So those are all things you can check out on the Red Hat YouTube channels um, as those sessions are available to you to check out after the fact. Probably not going to do that, (laughs) being honest. That's fine. (laughs) All right, well, that is it for new news. Uh, We we had some other stories we cut out, but, uh, you know, we... Definitely recommend you check those out if you're interested in the show notes. Uh, but Peter, you're here to do lightning round. We were we were thinking we were just going to wing it, and uh, but now you're here, and we can definitely do Thank it. Thank goodness I made it. Apologies for being late. Um, so let's start with, and <laughs> if you got me in here somewhere with a little sneak attack, I understand. Um, <laughs> uh, AWS Ground Station now supports data delivery to Amazon S3. I mean, hearing a headline like that, I could see why you would think that we might have tricked you. <laughs> <laughs> Ground station. Is that is that like five to seven days worth of delivery time, though? It goes, goes by truck. I mean, it goes yeah, by satellite, really. so yeah. It's, yeah. it's about the same speed as the truck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, can we upgrade to air station? AWS cost categories introduces a details page. <laughs> wow. Watch out. I mean, the details are that it costs a lot of money, and I can categorize that into Jonathan's fault. <laughs> <laughs> I can just imagine when you when you open the expand the details, it reads it really fast in one of Amazon's poly very fast voices, like the uh, like when they're selling you the financing for a used car or something. You know, your mileage may vary. Yes, AWS Secrets Manager delivers provider for Kubernetes Secret Store CSI driver. <laughs> I mean. Where are you going to put the secrets if they're not in the secret store? I mean, like, like, do you put them in the secret bunker or do you put them in the secret, you know, vault? Like, the store makes sense, I guess. Maybe. Zoom in. Zoom in. Enhance. <laughs> <laughs> How about AWS Systems Manager, Ops Center, and Explorer now integrate with AWS Security Hub for diagnosis and remediation of security findings? Oh, fantastic. Another way for security to tell ops what to do. Yes. Oh, my goodness. I got to say that's that's in the lead right now because I've suffered that so many times. AWS Nitro Enclaves now supports Windows operating system. 
Which just shows me that I really don't understand enclaves because I don't even know how Windows would do that. Yeah, I don't even understand Windows. AWS Cloud 9 now supports Amazon Linux 2 environments. Showing that product management at AWS only cares about features sometimes too and not tech debt. <laughs> because Amazon Linux 1 is almost end of life. They squeaked in there. Squeak that one <laughs> under the radar. Yes, Amazon Linux 2. How about Google Cloud Spanner launches the customer managed encryption keys and access approval? Which sounds really exciting until you realize access approval is approving access for Google to access your Cloud Spanner and not your users. I don't want them accessing my Cloud Spanner. Then you say no when they make the request. And oh. then your support case never gets closed. So it's a, <laughs> it's a terrible catch 2022. It's custom managed keys that you have to give to the provider. It's just, yeah, okay. <laughs> Next. It, you get to manage them. We know we, we get them. It's just you get to manage them. Yeah. Trust yes. us. Trust but verify our shared security yes. model. That's it. It is a light week uh, proven by the fact that uh, all of those were very light. Especially AWS cost categories introducing a details page. That one killed me. Can't believe that made the cut. <laughs> you weren't here to call it uh, from the pre, pre-show. pre Yes. So that's that's uh, on you. Well, no, this is, you couldn't have cut it. There'd be nothing left to talk about. <laughs> I mean, that's true. I mean, yeah. I had to leave in Systems Manager, Ops Center, and Explorer and aggregates with Amazon Security Hub. I mean, mostly because it was long and I had to make you say it. But uh, that would, that, you know what? I was, I was on my game for that one too. I got every word right. You did great. Yes, yes, you did. Yes, Justin, I'm giving you the one for feeling my pain. Yes, with yes. security, telling Ops what to do. Indeed. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate it. I will take the point gladly after I felt I was robbed last week by Jonathan. Yeah. <laughs> For his mail merging. <laughs> so that's fine. So you've used that before. I did. I said it. Wow. Right. Just, so you just win this week with an easy dig at InfoSec. Okay, I'll see how it is. Yeah, I'll take it. I'll take the easy win. I'm not, I'm not above that, Jonathan. Like, like come on. I'm petty. Security, pettiness, and me, oh, all the time. It's it's no big deal. Well, you're all learning my trigger points. It's like, oh, we forget being witty for everybody else. Let's just be witty for Peter. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's totally a game the for judge. Peter. Like, there's yeah. no, no other thing to it. Well, uh, things are coming up still in the cloud. Although I could have told you about that Red Hat thing. I'm sorry about that. that you, know, you guys all missed out on the Red Hat Summit because they failed to let us know that they were doing a summit that they should communicate to us. Or maybe I, don't, I should track the Red Hat RSS feeds, but eh, I just don't want to. But uh, if you, the ones I do track, Google Cloud Summits are coming up with the Data Cloud Summit on May 26th and the Financial Services Summit on May 27th. Uh, and then, of course, we're still very much close to DockerCon for AWS Container Day for ECS. Uh, May 26th. Do check that out at DockerCon. Uh, this week uh, coming up is actually the KubeCon one, which you won't have a chance to uh, register for, but we'll cover it next week here on the show. And then, of course, the Amazon summits are starting in force uh, coming up here on May 12th with the first one in North America and then all the rest of the world following suit very, very closely after that. So do check out those conferences. Your time is running out uh, before we start talking about other conferences you may want to check out sometime in the future. And that is it for another fantastic week here in the cloud. And that is the Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. 